Good morning, everybody. My name is Chip. I'm the creative arts director here at Velocity. Excited to be with you today. Excited to talk to you today as we talk about wrestling with God. When I think of that word wrestling, it makes me think about when I was a young teenager and how much I loved wrestling. I was obsessed with wrestling. And not the wrestling maybe you're thinking of, like, you know, the guys with the, the headphones and the cauliflower ears, spandex, you know, rolling around on mats. That wasn't really my thing. I was more into, like, WrestleMania. <laughs> I don't know what WrestleMania is at. Like, is it, like, 28 or 9? This was not even WrestleMania 1. This was the OG WrestleMania. It was just perfect. Uh, so I was a big Hulk Hogan fan. If you don't know who that, that's that guy right there. You know, the guy that was in Rocky Three, And he had this feud with this guy. He had a great name, Roddy Rowdy Piper. Or is it Rowdy Roddy Piper? It was hard to say, but, you know, he was a rowdy guy. And to show you the absurd nature of WrestleMania, as a teenager, I thought, like, WrestleMania and wrestling was real. Um, I mean, it's real, but it's... Let me just say this, I thought it was unscripted. I could not have been more wrong. And I should have known this, that when pop icons like Cindy Lauper and Mr. T show up in the ring, there's something awry with this picture. <laughs> you know what really should have learned me to it is, do you, does anyone know who refereed the first WrestleMania? Does anyone know? He's in the picture, he's right between Mr. T's knees there. The greatest, Muhammad Ali. Yeah, that should have been a key to my young brain, like maybe WrestleMania and wrestling isn't really all real, and uh, maybe it's a little bit scripted, but I've always loved fake fighting. You know, that's always been fun to me. It's kind of why I liked fake um, kung fu movies as a kid, not because of the acting or the plot. I just liked it for the sound effects, you know, where some guy would have like a a five-foot-long ponytail, and he would whip it around and beat people up with it. I mean, that stuff was awesome, but the sound effects in kung fu movies. This is a thing on TikTok. There's a few of these I want you to see. See, isn't every video better with kung fu noises? Every video, you can do anything with it. I decided I was inspired to make my own yesterday, so this is my version of this. It just makes driving so much more fun when you can picture these, these sounds in your car. So yeah, fighting's really fun. Super fun when it's make-believe. Not so much fun when it's in real life. I don't know if you've ever been in a fist fight. I've been in four fist fights in my life. It's been a while, like, like three days ago, you know, since my last one. But like, <laughs> I've, been in a, I've been in four fist fights my whole life, and I've lost three. So it's not really, really my forte. Um, I don't know if you've been in a fist fight with anybody before, but I bet all of us, I, I wouldn't even bet, I know all of us have been in a fight with someone before. Uh, maybe it's a spouse, a kid, a family member, uh, a friend, a coworker, a boss, uh, someone you see on the highway, a total stranger. 
And um, last week we talked about, you know, being in a fight with God, wrestling with God. We talked about it in a very literal sense when we talked about Jacob. But a lot of times we're, we're fighting with God as well, too. Maybe not in a literal sense, but in a very um, figurative way. And it's kind of defined by these, just this dull kind of sluggish malaise. It might be a disagreement with God and how he treats you and how he runs the universe and uh, maybe it's just disappointment with how your life has turned out and, and we blame God for that. And today we're going to talk about a woman in the Bible. Her name is Naomi and she was in a similar fight with God. She was wrestling with God. And so we're going to read about it in the book of Ruth. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth and we'll have it on the screen as well too. So the story starts off in Ruth chapter 1, starting in the first verse, and it reads this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Oh, good names. Should be like in Lord of the Rings. Malon and Kilion. They were uh, Ephrathites, that's a hard word to say, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So here's the picture. There's a famine in Israel. We know what a famine is. It's a food shortage. And so Elimelech did what most of us would do in that situation where there's no food, panic, total panic. And when you panic and when I panic, we tend to make bad and poor decisions, and that's what Elimelech does. Now, we've never had like these severe famines in our lifetime, but I think the last 18 months, we've seen glimpses of that. Do y'all remember way back in 2020 where there was the great toilet paper shortage? Did you panic? A lot of us panicked. <laughs> uh, maybe closer to home in 2021, there was the great, great gasoline shortage of 2021 that <laughs> crippled our, our lives for like two days or something like that. So we've seen the panic that ensues with Famines, but what if a famine lasts a lot longer? Um, panic can ensue. Now, some of us in the last 18 months, we've been able to kind of carry on with life. You know, I've been to a couple of changes, but if you have Zoom, if you have the internet, if you have a laptop, you're already in the upper class of prosperity. You probably don't think of yourself like that, but um, there have been other people in this country and all around the world, their livelihood has been ripped from them. Their businesses have been uh, taken away from them and they don't have Zoom and they don't have reasonable income. And um, that's kind of what was happening with Elimelech and he panics. And they go to this place called Moab. Now Moab was a land and a culture that, that didn't recognize God. They didn't recognize the God of the Bible. It was defined as a culture of total sexual promiscuity, lots of incest. There was no temple. There was no quote-unquote church. There was no Bible, no community of other believers, no small groups, nothing like that. And this family goes there for 10 years. They literally walk away from God for a decade. How many of you have, can relate to that? Maybe it's been a decade for you where you've been apart from God. Maybe it's a season. Maybe it's something that you've dealt with in the past, a, a season of walking away from God, where you've, you've stopped going to church, you've stopped going to any kind of Christian community, you've stopped reading your Bible, you've stopped praying, you've stopped doing all the things that once defined your life when you were close with God. Um, there's an interesting thing in this story is that it might, when you walk away from God, quote unquote, I mean, you really can't. If God lives inside of you, it's really hard for him to, to ditch you 
you can walk away from him all you want, and he's, he's going with you wherever you go. But uh, have you, if you've walked away from God, it doesn't just affect you. Um, it might be affecting other people as well, too. And this was the case with Elimelech's sons, Malon and Killian. They followed their father's example. And I just want to sidestep here for a second. If you're a parent um, or a, a parent of, of kids, I just want to remind you that what you say is of little importance, especially as it relates to your Christian walk. I mean, how you demonstrate that by how you live is probably the most important thing you can do as a parent. Now, Ruth goes on to say in Ruth 1, starting in verse 3, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there for about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow. In those three quick verses, Naomi's life is totally upended, totally destroyed, ruined, devastated, and it's not like, hey, Naomi, just buck up a little camper, go get a job. It didn't really work that way back then. And three guys died, um, both her two sons and, and her husband, and they had no plan. They had no plan for the women that they left behind. And so there's three women's lives who are ruined because of the poor decisions from, from these guys. And it's interesting that these, these men made choices to preserve their life. They maybe did the, the smart thing on the outside, but um, kind of makes me think of our mantra in the world, you know, safety first. You know, safety is really important, you know, but I think if you're a follower of Christ, safety first should be way down on the list, like eighth or ninth, you know. Um, Elimelech and his family, they practiced safety first, and that ended up defining them and costing them. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, this isn't going to be on the screen, but if you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 23, God instructs his people not to marry Moabites. Now, why does he do that? Is it because he's a big racist? It really had nothing to do with race, but it had everything to do with, it was a religious issue. Uh, but his sons do it anyway. His sons marry Moabite women. They don't really want to hear what God has to say. Apparently the Moabite women were, were hot. And so that's kind of probably, I'm just assuming that's probably what got their brains to thinking that way. Um, but sometimes, again, a decade or a season away from God can result in, in terrible decisions that affect not only you, but the people that you love. And so the story continues. Naomi decides to go back to Israel, and her two widowed daughters-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, they say, we're coming with you. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase what Naomi says. She says, don't go with me. I'm old. I'm worthless. Get out while you can. Uh, Naomi tells them that, you know, his Lord, the Lord has turned his back on me. Stay where you're at. Worship your pagan God. Just leave me alone. So it's kind of reverse evangelism. You know, Naomi's one of the heroes of the Bible, and this is like her big faith moment, you know, where her daughters-in-laws are wanting to, to support her and go with her. And she says, no, go back. Go back to your pagan God. And this is a passage that you might have heard before because it's read at a lot of weddings to talk about commitment to one another. And Ruth 1, starting in verse 16, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. Isn't that cool? It's cool that Ruth doesn't give up on her so easily. She's pretty stubborn that way, but she is so full of love 
and compassion for Naomi that she doesn't listen to her reverse evangelism. Ruth 1, verse, starting in verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought, back, brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, the word Naomi, her name actually means pleasant. And when they're like, hey, no, Naomi's back. This is awesome. She's like, don't call me by my, my name, my God-given name. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. So that's the state that Naomi is in. So she's lonely. She's grieving. She's insecure. She's ruined. She's starving. She's a mean, nasty, old, widowed, without hope, bitter woman. And here's what she does. She doesn't blame her husband. She, she blames God. She, she shakes her finger at God of how he afflicted her. Maybe we've done that before. I know I have. Shake my finger at God and blamed him for my misfortune that was really brought on by my own choices, my own decisions, or the choices and decisions of other people close to me. Now, the turning point of the whole story is a little verse in Ruth 1, verse 7 says this, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. That small, little, seemingly insignificant decision didn't have a whole lot of faith. She didn't have a whole lot of faith there, but she just, there's there something that was drawing her back to Israel and away from Moab. And that would kind of counteract all of her family's bad decisions. Now, that's exactly what repentance is. That's a word that Christians kind of thrown around, and maybe you've heard that before, that, you know, you need to repent, because you say it like a, like a Southern Baptist, repent, you know? And kind of what we think of that is, is like, okay, I, you know, I smoke cigarettes, and so I'm going to, like, really try hard. I'm going to repent and try not to smoke cigarettes anymore. But that's not really what the word repentance is. Really, repentance is a 180-degree turn, and you're never going back. Now, for Christ followers, that's, you're only going to do that one time in your life, where you're walking down a path apart from God, spiritually dead, and God gets a hold of you, and you make a decision. You turn towards him, and you're never going back. That's what repentance is. It's not a watered-down thing. It's a total life change commitment forever. Baptism is a really cool picture of that. I'll talk about that in just a second. But I want to leave you with this, this timeless principle as we talk about this. This might be the thing that you need to take your camera out and take a picture of. Uh, for good things to start, bad things must end. For good things to start in your life, bad things must end. If you want better outcomes in your life, it's not usually because you need to start doing something. And starting to do things like new habits, that's, that's a great thing to do. But not if you're continuing to do bad things that are counterproductive to the outcomes that you want in life. And I can think of a million examples. Here's just a couple. Uh, if you want better health outcomes in your life, you don't need to go join a gym, all right? Maybe that's like step four or five or something like that. But what you need to do is you need to stop eating box junk that's poisoning your body every single day. That's what you need to stop doing. Uh, if you want better financial outcomes in your life, you don't need to go to a 
financial seminar or get, you know, Dave Ramsey's, you know, DVDs or something like that, you, what you need to do is probably stop buying Amazon junk every single day. You don't need all that stuff. Guys, if your marriage is in a rut, you don't need a marriage seminar. You don't need to read a book. You need to stop watching porn every day. If you're a single guy and you're having a hard time finding someone to spend the rest of your life with, stop watching porn. Ladies, if you're fighting symptoms of depression, you don't need to try a different type of medication. You need to stop watching the news. You need to stop listening to sad songs on Spotify. You need to stop drinking two glasses of wine a night before bed. Students, any students in here? Hey, if your grades suck, don't spend nine hours a day on a screen, a little teeny screen, talking to people out there. You know, for, for good things to start, bad things must end. And if you are struggling, I mean, those are just a couple examples. I mean, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, you don't have to. But for all of us, if you're struggling in your faith, you don't need more prayer. You don't need more Bible study. You need to stop. It's blank. Fill in the blank for you. What is that blank? What needs to stop immediately in your life? Before you leave here today, what needs to stop? Immediately, What do you need to walk away from in your life? Here's a scary question. Who do you need to walk away from in your life? So there's a word for that, that blank right there, and it's just the word sin. And I know that when you hear that, like me, you probably think of like the nasty nine sins, the dirty dozen, the filthy five. You know what I'm talking about, smoking, drinking, doing drugs, all that kind of stuff, right? And I mentioned a couple of those, but sin is whatever we replace our meaning and purpose to life with, apart from God. And we all do that. We all need to stop doing things that are, are tearing us apart. Now, as far as our relationship with God goes, he's forgiven every sin. He, he's cleansed us. He's made us right with him. But it's, it's counterproductive for us to be um, doing things that are replacing him, that we're worshiping instead of him. And so it's a good idea for us to take inventory and to have the courage, because it takes courage to do that. It takes courage, and it takes a little bit of putting down your personal pride to face reality in your life, kind of like Naomi did, to say, you know what, it's not working. Man, the outcomes of my life are not working, and something has to stop immediately. And maybe you know exactly what that is. Maybe that's something you need to pray about, that God, show me what I need to stop doing immediately before I leave here today so that good things can begin to happen. So that's what repentance is. And again, that's what baptism is. Baptism is a symbol of repentance. It's a symbol of not a great amount of faith, but a small amount of faith, kind of like Naomi. It's just turning towards God. It's going one way in life and saying, I don't have what it takes. God, you need to save me. You need to redeem me. You need to protect me. You need to guard me. You need to give me your life because I'm dead. And so if you're interested in that, maybe you need to do that. Maybe that's the first step in repentance for you and turning that 180 degrees back towards God. And so if that's interest of you, just, just flag some of us down. You can email us. You can go to our website. There's tons of information about that. And uh, maybe baptism for you would be a first step in turning it all around. Anyway, I want to kind of give you the, the rest of the story and Cliff Notes version um, I'd rather actually you read the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters long, 
And so you can read it kind of in your personal Bible study this week or maybe with your family. It's only four chapters. It's a really, really cool story. But what happens is that Naomi and Ruth return to Israel. And Ruth does the equivalent of go to a local food bank. Uh, So God had set up a plan for the poor and disenfranchised in Israel to have a portion of whoever owned a certain field, for instance, and they would go and um, give a portion of that for people to go and kind of work those those fields for some of the leftovers. And it just so happens that Ruth finds one particular field that is owned by one of the big heroes of the story. This guy's name is Boaz. That's another cool name. There's really cool names in the Old Testament. His name is Boaz, and he's one of the family's close relatives. And he's called in the story a guardian redeemer. Uh, So he's a guardian, he's a protector, and he is a redeemer. He is a a savior, and he's the Christ figure in the story. And he's the one who chooses Ruth, who's a foreigner who comes along with an old, mean, bitter mother-in-law in tow. I think about Ruth, man, like, you know, if she was like doing the dating app, Thing. Can you imagine her putting that on her dating profile? So I'm homeless, dirt broke poor, no job prospects, spend most of my days at the food bank for handouts, previously married, widowed, and as an added bonus, I've got a crusty, bitter mother-in-law that comes with me as a package deal. <laughs> Swipe right. But Boaz takes notice of her, and she's probably beautiful, as a lot of the Moabite women apparently were but he takes note of her character. He's so impressed that she would not only take care of herself in a foreign land, but she would provide for her mean, crusty, bitter old mother-in-law. And after, you know, sparks fly, then the relationship kind of goes quiet. And then Naomi gets a really good idea. She's like trying to kind of move things along a little bit. And um, I'm not gonna go through the story. It's kind of a a racy story. There's some weird stuff in chapter three of Ruth. And theologians have talked about like, you know, Naomi did exactly what God wanted her to do. There's other people that say this was terrible, racy dating advice. I'm, I don't really know where to land, but it, it's questionable advice at the very best. But luckily, the hero of the story, Boaz, is a man of the highest character. And he falls in love with Ruth, and he does some shrewd business dealings to be able to be her redeemer and her protector and ultimately her husband. And fast forward a little bit and they have a son. And the conclusion of the story is this, Ruth 4, starting in verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Obed, Naomi and Ruth's, Naomi's grandson, Ruth and Boaz's son, was the grandfather of this guy named David. Maybe you have heard of him. One of the central figures in all of the Bible, the greatest king that Israel had ever known. And I'm thinking like if Naomi's holding Obed and she's so happy, is she wondering, I wonder if my great-great-grandson will be one of the most important kings in all of human history? Probably not. She didn't anticipate any of that probably. And I think there's a principle there that some of the most important work we do in our life is really not about our life, but it might be a generation removed from us or two generations or many generations from us. Now the book of Ruth ends with that genealogy, a short little genealogy where it says that David uh, came from this, this line. And the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament starts off with a genealogy 
as well. And I don't know if you've ever like read the Bible and you get to the genealogies and you're like, how boring, you know, but it's there for a reason. And as you read through the genealogies that Matthew lays out, you're going to see some really interesting things. You're going to see Boaz in there, yes, because most of the men were always in the genealogies, but you're also going to see this woman, Ruth, in there. Not too many women were listed in genealogies. So these are some central figures. It mentions Obed, it mentions Jesse, it mentions David, of course. And 14 generations down the line, about 1,000 years later, you see Jesus in this genealogy, the Savior of the world. Now, the interesting fact about this book of Ruth, and I don't think there's any other book in the Bible that's like this, that God's name is not really overtly mentioned. Uh, he's mentioned by people's dialogue, but it's not like, you know, you get a like behind the scenes glimpse of what was going on in heaven, like God, you know, showed up and sent Ruth to Boaz's field. It's nothing like that. We just kind of assume that God is working in and through the events of that. We sing this song, we probably should have done it this week because it's such a cool song, but we sing the song, you know, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop. Or I'm just gonna keep on singing the song. <laughs> Do you know that song that we sing here? I just love that bridge when we come to that because God is always working. Whether we see it, whether we feel it is immaterial. He is always working, he is always working. He never stops working, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. Uh, my friend Christina Cavanaugh, she's on staff here at Velocity, and she's a, um, she's a cross-stitcher, a cross-stitcher. And she made this cross-stitch thing on stage with me, and she let me borrow it this week. And I don't want to besmirch your, your artwork, but it doesn't really look like much. You know, it, it's, frankly, it's a hot mess. You know, it's, it's all tangled and jumbled. Um, it's, it's backward. That's, that's a big problem, so it's just kind of hard to see what it's really, really doing. It's not really recognizable. And sometimes our lives are like that. Sometimes they feel like that, right? It's a big, tangled, hot, jumbled mess. Can't make sense of anything. A lot of this mess is our own doing. A lot of times it has nothing to do with us. A lot of times it's from you know, mistakes and, and sin of others that have, that have hurt us, that have let, left us in the predicament that we're at. But when you turn it over, which I'm not going to do yet, but when you zoom in, I want to show you this piece when you zoom in. This is the front of it. And when you begin to zoom in and you see a little piece of this, now you're starting to notice some things. You're starting to notice the precision. You're starting to notice the details. You're starting to know like the different colors and the different patterns. And there's something that's becoming a little more recognizable. See, God is a, is a master artist. He's always at work. Whether we know it whether we feel it, whether we recognize it, he is always doing something. And your pain has a purpose. Your pain always has a purpose. God is doing something. He's trying to teach you something in and through that. And of course, when you turn it over and look at the other side. Yeah. <laughs> it looks a little different, doesn't it? You can see from a different perspective of how the master cross-stitcher, the master artist is doing something. There was a plan all along. And that's what God's doing in our lives. By the way, cross-stitching, I thought cross-stitching was just like little cottages and flowers and things like that, you know. I didn't know cross-stitch could like be Star Wars, you know, and Mandalorian. I love the slogan in the Mandalorian, by the way. This is the way. 
this is the way. It reminds me of a, one of my favorite quotes from a pastor named J. Vernon McGee. He says this, This is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> a lot of my life is spent advising God, counseling God, reminding him that he's not doing a very good job, but I'm usually just looking at the other side of the tapestry. I'm looking at it just like this. And part of me needs to step back and trust that God is at work. Whether I feel it, whether I know it, he is always at work. And no pain that I have and no pain that you have wherever you're at in your faith journey, that's not wasted. God is working and he's doing things in and through you. And maybe we'll get to see a little bit of it. Maybe we'll get to see a little bit of the finished work in this life. Uh, we'll definitely be able to see it um, when we pass from this life and when we're in his presence and we'll be able to see so much more of how he's working. So the story ends with Naomi. She comes to God broken. She comes to him empty-handed. And know what God does with Naomi's empty hands? He literally places a grandson in those empty hands. She begins the story totally hurting. She's so hurting, but she ends the story on the other side of that. She's, she's happy. Uh, but something had to happen from her going from hurting to happy. Something had to happen in the middle of that. And so what I want to leave you with is that, I guess I want to ask you that question. Are, are you hurting right now? Maybe you can relate to Naomi. Maybe you've been devastated by, by grief and death, financial ruin, um, Whatever it is, you know, we're, as long as we're in this world, we're, we're going to experience pain and hardship. And if you're in that right now, I know a lot of you are. Um, here's what I want to say to you, is that before we can move from hurt to happiness, we first need to heal. Before we can move from a place of hurt to a place of happiness, we first have to heal. And here's the good news. This is God's specialty. This is what God does probably better than anything. He, he heals us. That's why he sent Jesus to this planet, to heal the souls of mankind. We were far apart from God. Our most important relationship was broken, and we'd walked far away from him, and he began to, to heal us by offering his son to die on a cross for all of our sins, to be buried, and to three days later to be risen again from the grave. So that same life that rose him from the grave can come inside of us and raise us from our condition of spiritual death. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion every week. So we're gonna do that in just a second. There are some, some trays here in the building and you can go and take communion and, and be reminded of this is um, a healing symbol, that God has healed us through Christ. And he longs to heal us. He, he longs to heal us in every single way. And the only question is, will you let him? That's the only thing standing in your way and uh, of, of Jesus healing you is, is your own pride and your own stubbornness. And, and maybe it just needs to start with stopping something right now. And so during this time, maybe you'll just do business with God. Maybe you'll just use this as a time to, to thank him for his, his ultimate sacrifice, his gifts to us. Uh, so let me pray for us as we take communion. Our Lord God, we wanna thank you for uh, the story, the story that you've given us in the book of Ruth and how encouraging that is to our, our faith. Um, like Naomi, God, we have fallen short uh, sometimes we don't feel like we have much faith and not much to hang on to, but we're just going to acknowledge that you're working. We're going to trust that you're always at work 
in our lives. Whether we see it, whether we know it, we're, we're going to trust that um, you are that great uh, worker, that great healer. And I want to pray for everyone in this room and everyone who's watching online. We pray, God, that you, if there's healing to be done, that you would do that business with us, that you would begin to heal our souls, the deepest parts of who we are, and pray that our hearts would be turned towards you. God, tell us what we need to do. Tell us what we need to stop doing. Uh, Thank you for Jesus for making all that possible. And we ask things in your name. Amen.